Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I am joined by Kate Parminter. Kate is a member of Parliament and Kate has personal experience of her daughter having an eating disorder. Following on from this experience, Kate has become really passionate about working to improve the treatment that people receive for eating disorders, including the medical training that we're providing, the number of beds that we're providing, and also the time period that people are waiting to get treatment, especially in adults. We touch on really important topics such as what the government is doing and what more they need to do. We talk about the work that Kate is doing, including the online safety bill and making this more appropriate for people with eating disorders. I'm so, so honoured to have been able to have this conversation with Kate and I'm just so appreciative that she is using the platform that she has to make a difference to eating disorders. I say it in the podcast, but before we start, I just want to say to everybody, we are such a caring community and it is so such an honour to be part of this community where people take their experience and want to reduce the suffering of people that may come after them. So if everybody's listening, I am just really glad to be part of this community making a difference and thank you for being here today. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm just going to see if I can turn the volume up on this. Let's just see. Yeah, I think I can. Good. Awesome. Amazing. You sound very clear and crisp. It's wonderful. Good. (laughs) How are you doing today? Yeah, good. Busy, but that's no different to most days here in the madhouse. (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. Is it really hot? Whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm over the road from Parliament. My office is in One Millbank. So I I look over, I'm looking out my window now and I can see Big Ben and everything. So... (gasps) It's it's a a really super view. Wow. Yeah, that is like dream office view. That sounds amazing. (laughs) So it's so lovely, Kate, to have you on the podcast. I think just to give everybody a bit of a background. um, So Kate and I met when we were at the Hope Virgo um, Eating Disorder March. So the Dump the Scales March, which was in May. May. Time just is flying. (laughs) Um, And Kate did a wonderful speech um, when we were all stood around talking about kind of her personal experience and then the work that she's also doing within the government um, to support those with eating disorders. And I was very, very inspired. So plucked up the courage to come over and say hello. And you were absolutely lovely. And I realised you are just a normal person. So I shouldn't have been nervous at all. Yeah, I'm really normal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, and that is that is really lovely. So I guess to start us off, would you mind, you know, as much as you kind of want to mention, and I always say at the start of the podcast, I don't just want to say like, give a brief overview, because it's such a difficult thing to go through. Um, but to just share a bit about your experience of having a loved one with an eating disorder. Yeah, I mean, it was, 
And I, what I'm going to say is I have Rose, my daughter, uh, has anorexia and I have her full permission to talk about. She's very open about her uh, her, um, her eating disorder. So I'm not saying anything that um, uh, I shouldn't be saying um, if Rose is listening in. Um, yeah, I think when Rose was diagnosed when she was 17 in, in 2017 and it was a real shock to us, mm. we hadn't really picked up the signs at all. And although we'd had friends who had a daughter with an eating disorder. Um, I don't think it's until you've actually experienced it either personally or as a family member, as a loved one, that you really realise the the extent and the uh, the horror. I think is the word I would use actually of of an eating disorder. And so Rose was yeah seventeen, and then we started the sort of the journey of the CAMS community care, and then she experienced. Um, inpatient care over 100 miles away from where we lived Um, and we could manage that we're a comfortable middle-class family but it wasn't easy for us so I think we soon realized just the challenges that would pose to people Mm. um, who wouldn't be able to have like we did we could we're a tag team, my husband and I, um, we have a car and we could afford the petrol. Um, and actually, in fact, when Rose was on, on her second round of inpatient um, in Marla, there was someone there who was from Wales, a single parent with a, a mum who was a single parent. And, you know, you, you just realise. So what I'm saying is we began to realise the the impacts of eating disorder, not just on on Rose, but on, on our family. Um, uh, and it became pretty clear quite soon that we weren't going to be able to help Rose to recover quickly. Um, both the, I mean, we were lucky that we were able to access services much more quickly than some people can. Um, the NHS was there in our, uh, in our locality um, and we had, within a good time frame, we got support. So it wasn't that we didn't have the NHS there for us, but Rose wasn't in a place that she wanted to recover. And therefore I felt incredibly frustrated as a parent because you can be doing all the, you can read all the books or watch all the videos. But as a parent, if your child's not in a space that she can beat or they can beat the eating disorder because it applies to to men and and others too, um, you're pretty limited in what you can do. And I found that incredibly frustrating. I'm a person who spent their whole life being very... How can we do this? What can we solve? Mm-hmm. Um, and so being at home, all you could be there was to sort of pick up the pieces and to try and not make mistakes and say the wrong thing. I couldn't really do as much positively as I wanted to do. Mm. And therefore, I find coming to my place of work, which is in Parliament, is my opportunity for me to bring something good out of the experience. I'm not mm. saying I'm achieving huge amounts but I can use the platform that I have here in the House of Lords to raise the issue of eating disorders and that makes me feel like I'm actually achieving something and I think that's quite important both talking to people who have eating disorders that sense of being able to do something positive I understand is important for them but for as a parent who's unable to help their child I mean she's now an an adult officially you know so it's really for me to be able to use the platform I have is a way of helping me cope with what is a a difficult, I mean, a hugely difficult illness for Rose, but equally a a difficult illness for a parent who can't solve the problem. 
Mm. Yeah, and I hear that quite often from parents in in that frustration of, I am your parent. Like my purpose here is to fix things that happen to you. And like you say, with with an eating disorder, you can be there to support and you know to really help to guide somebody. But unless they they want to make the changes themselves, then then things won't happen. And I can imagine, you know driving a hundred miles to go and see your daughter in hospital and then to for her to turn around and say yeah I don't want to get better it's just like wow okay cool so we're kind of doing all of this and I think you know my parents have had very similar frustrations with me and the amount of work that they're putting in and I'm just like no I'm not really that bothered like I'm quite happy which obviously often is not the actual person speaking um but I'm sure that frustration is a very common emotion that you know parents carers partners friends whatever all feel you kind of just want to shake your loved one and be like can you just can, can you just come back please yeah no no you have to i mean you, if you love someone then you want to do what's best for mm. them but it sometimes you're not sure as you write so you're not sure if you're talking to the eating disorder and they're you know putting roadblocks in the way or whether it is genuinely that the person is is finding some value in the eating disorder to cope with some of the other things in their lives. Um, you know, and it, navigating that is really hard for a parent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's such an important reflection that you've made there in that, you know, a lot of the time people are, they, they're gaining something from having an eating disorder. There is value in that. And as difficult as that can be to hear, um, I think, you know, often for, for the person that is struggling with eating disorder, kind of untangling what that value is can be really important, but then sharing it with your loved ones as well. And I will always say to my my partner now, you know, if I if I do something, you know, don't eat enough or I, I exercise, whatever you, rather than being annoyed at me for doing it, if you can, if you have the potential to just kind of be like, what's going on? You know, it is something up there because that we can then start to pick apart rather than me and you being on opposite sides and the eating disorder joining me. Um, so I think that's a really good point about the value. Um, but I think, you know, like you said as well, taking a pretty crappy situation, if we're being realistic, uh, and making a positive out of it is is a brilliant kind of approach and I think you know that's one thing I love about this community is there are so many people whether they've had an eating disorder or if they've supported someone they're such a caring community and everybody wants to you know help make someone else's suffering less um so in regards to the work that you're doing within government um what sort of are your goals in order to to support eating disorder treatment well just so people understand because I think um there's still quite a lot of aren't people don't really always understand Parliament as well as we think they do. Mm -hmm. I'm a member in the House of Lords, so we're the second chamber. So I'm not an MP, so I don't um, I don't have a constituency. Uh, and I, I am a member of uh, the House of Lords where we scrutinise government legislation and we debate issues and we try and advise the government. And if a bill comes to us that we don't like, we send it back to the Commons and hope that them and the government will change their mind so I'm a member of parliament the government is the sort of the executive who make the decisions so at the case we're in at the moment obviously the conservatives are the the government um but for me what what it came 
very clear when Rose was first ill, it was exactly at the same time that um, there was a really interesting report which came out from the Parliamentary Health and Service Ombudsman, which is a parliamentarian I saw a copy of, and basically had looked at uh, a number of deaths, including Avril Hart's sad death from uh, anorexia, and had made some linkages between the deaths and had come up with some recommendations. And it recommended three things. And for me, that that was sort of right. This is my guiding star. This is what I'm going to spend my time doing. Because what it said, three things. Firstly, it said that there was um, severe, I mean, really severe problems in terms of gaps in the training for medical students going from doctors right through to doctors in acute hospitals. So training was the first problem. Secondly, it identified that there were significant delays in treatment. Um, and specific, I mean, we can talk about children's um, uh, services, if, but for, you know, there's not even a waiting time standard for adults. I mean, that's, if, and if you don't measure something, it doesn't matter. So, you know, the fact that we don't have that, frankly, says it all. So waiting times and sort of the treatment delays. And then thirdly, the fact that I mean, in terms of specialist beds, because we're always going to have people who have severe and enduring eating disorders. And yes, of course, it's right that we prioritise early treatment and community care. That's where best chances are in terms of getting people uh, into recovery. But you're going to need beds. And the amount of beds when I actually started asking parliamentary questions, I mean, it just I mean, it blew my socks away. I mean, I should have known, really. I mean, if you know, we live in the home counties and the fact that Rose couldn't get a bed it was either going to be in Edinburgh or Birmingham. I mean, that should have, you know, set the alarm bells ringing. There wasn't enough beds around. So those three things, I said, right, medical training, doing something about um, treatment delays and also beds. Those are the things that I wanted to focus on because I just thought um, we needed to get, get to grips. And so I, I said, right, I'm going to get a debate in the House of Lords. And so I went to the library uh, and said, can you give me anything you've got on eating disorders? When was the last debate on eating disorders? You know, when was the last debate on binge eating or anorexia? And they came back and said, well, actually, there hasn't been a debate just on eating disorders. Wow. And this is 2017. Um, uh, so that was the first sign to me that the sort of the stigma around eating disorders, which I think has moved on massively in the last five years, actually. But there had been quite a, you know, it was really swept under the carpet for an enormously long time. Uh, and so I thought, right, I'm going to get a debate. So I put in for a debate. Uh, and after I'd had the debate, it was really interesting. Two things were really interesting about it. Firstly, the fact that the government responded in a way which, to me, wasn't anywhere near positive enough. That they were going to carry on, you know, just, I mean, not poo-pooing the issue, but they just weren't going to do the mm. step change in terms of investment and commitment I mean, to, to look at effectively getting the data to identify how many people were suffering and then actually to put in the money to, to help start helping people. And then secondly, in the corridors, I mean, there's I mean, there's been a lot of press recently about members of the House of Lords and people coming in for peerages. And there's about 800 peers, a lot of peers. Um, not everybody comes in all the time, but nevertheless, people were coming up to me and saying, I'm really glad you raised this, my daughter, my son, my nephew. And it just allowed people to start talking much more openly about it. And so I think that was 
And I'm not saying that you know, it was me doing it, just somebody needed to be doing it to, to be talking about it more in the Lords. And since then, I'm just delighted the way that we've seen both down our end of the building and in the Commons, more people talking about the issues, mm. um, you know, bashing the government over the head to, to do more, but also being prepared to talk about it and uh, share those experiences, because I think that's really I mean, yeah, it's really important that we have the stories in order to help make the case. But I also think it's really powerful to, to, to create an environment where you can feel comfortable about talking about these things. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the kind of most important things that I've realised about doing this podcast is by speaking out about something that is potentially stigmatised or that there's shame around. Somebody then listening to that and being like, Oh, they're being open about their experience maybe I don't need to be ashamed of that um I think is is so powerful like you say and it, it's not funny in the slightest but when I do kind of training workshops um with clinicians or different groups of people and even it, sometimes it even takes me back of somebody that has had Neaton sort of for a very long time and you know knows a lot of people that have had Neaton disorder and I'll say to at the start of the workshop you know how many people have as much as you want to share how many people have personal experience or know somebody and it's like 75 percent and you just think wow why is this topic something that we're still pretending is really not a very common thing um and i think you know more so nowadays as well in society if we don't just look at eating disorders but we look at disordered eating as well which is awful to live with anyway but also has the potential of developing into an eating disorder I, I would say that most people have a difficult, you know, a, I can't even say normal because I don't know what normal is, but have challenges with food and their body. So, you know, as the government, which is kind of, you know, in, in charge of where the funding and stuff goes, I, I really struggle to see why they wouldn't want to invest in something that is so prominent in society that, you know, if we were able to prevent things rather than getting people you know, in such chronic positions that they do need to go inpatient to be in a bed, that would save a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of resources, and then everybody could be getting the care that they needed rather than, you know, naturally you have to focus on the people that are more chronic than others. But then that means that potentially you just have like a sliding effect of the people that were sort of the ones that you could prevent have now slid into the chronic and it's just kind of a continuum. Yeah, and I think that, that, that's so true. I find it so frustrating that, I mean, we use this figure that about, what is it, one and a, one and a quarter million people have some form of um, an eating disorder. But the government hasn't sat down and done a study. I mean, the government, we've, we, I've asked, others of people have asked, if you, you know, this is a massive problem. And after COVID, it became an even more massive problem because of the, um, how a lot of people reacted to, to the pandemic and the prevalence of eating disorders, which you hear anecdotally from GPs. But the government refuses to do an audit to basically say, OK, let's do a, you know, a, a nationwide survey, which they've done in other areas, a, a prevalence study of how many people are suffering from eating disorders. Because then if you've got the baseline information, you can make informed decisions about what are the services that are needed? And, and you make the really, really important point is, which is if you, if you know what you're dealing with and start tackling it early, you're going to save money in the long term um, because people can, if they are able to recover or they're able to find a way of coping better with 
the eating disorder that they have, then they're going to be able to work more. They're going to be able to, I mean, you know, bottom line, be more of a contributor to, to society, both in terms of paying taxes and in the in the other ways that we want people to be engaged in voluntary services and in basically enjoying life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're saving the state money. I mean, whatever side of the political divide you're on, um, you know, the argument for early intervention is 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 very clear and it's incredibly frustrating. Um, uh, in you know the, the government isn't prepared at the moment to invest the sums that are needed to tackle eating disorders and put the money in the in the treatment packages that we need so if they've done that like the prevalence studies and stuff for other things why is is there a reason have they said outwardly or do you have any thoughts of why it could be that they won't do it for eating disorders I don't know what their reasoning is. I mean, I've uh, I've been asking them for that. And I've also been asking them something that was, again, was asked for back in um, the 2017 PHSO report, which was an audit. The government should do an audit of all the eating disorder services that are out there to see how they're performing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the PHSO said this should be done really quickly because, you know, again, it's this point, what, what, what measures matters. Uh, and I was I chased again in a question in the House in February, uh, and they said, "Oh, we we still haven't got the, fine, the funding for that." So I wrote to the person uh, who's meant to be able to give an answer, the minister, and I said, "Well, can you give me a can you give me a timeline? Can you give me a reason?" Uh, and the answer was, "Well, we still don't have a, a firm date, and they won't give a um, they won't give a reason." Well, for me, that means it's just not a priority. Mm. Um, yeah. And you, we've seen that in, in other areas. I mean, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be doing this, but we've now seen the government have decided they're going to do a, a dedicated strategy for autism. Well, why don't we have one for eating disorders? Mm. Um, and I mean, you know, the government has also backtracked and said that it's going to not publish its 10-year cross-government mental health and well-being uh, plan. Well, that again would have been the opportunity to say precisely what it was going to do to address the clear deficiencies in services and training that we have at the moment for um for people with eating disorders so i think the government is is going in the wrong direction mm. um uh and i'm yeah i'm angry about that actually mm. yeah i have a question um and this may be my ignorance but so obviously this, i'm going to use a very basic example if i at my job said i am going to do this report on a service that we're providing and i'll get it done by x date blah 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 then if i didn't do it my manager would come to me and be like hannah why haven't you done it like you know this was your responsibility if they are you know the 10-year kind of mental health thing that you just mentioned yeah. if they need to create that report how are they getting away with not doing it? And who would be the person that would say to them, like, you guys were supposed to do this and you haven't? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, and, and the answer to that is, is that there's like a, um, because it's a political decision, the government have decided not to do something. What happens is political um, decisions can be challenged by parliamentary select committees. So here in the Lords, we have select committees and I chair one on environment and climate change. So we will call uh, de- the government to account. So, for example, if they don't produce a, a waste strategy, which they said that we're going to do, we will call them to account. And in the there is one in the Commons on health and social care, as health and social care committee. So it is the job of select committees to try and hold people to account. But because this is a democracy, we can 
we can say to the government, you should have produced this. And the government can still not do it because their ultimate response is, well, the only people who hold us to account are the people at a general election. And if people don't like it, they'll vote for somebody else. And that is the nature of the political system. Wow. We can we can press for things. So Parliament, be it the Commons or the Lords, can try and hold the government to account. We can create a stink about it. We can ask them to do something. But if they don't do something, then the only way that they can ultimately be held to account, the government, is through the ballot box at a general election. Which is why, everybody, it's so important that you go and vote. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I would really, really, um, uh, it's a really good point because it's very easy to be cynical about, you know, well, nothing ever happens. Uh, but we are, we have a democracy in this country. First past the post may not be perfect, but it's the only system we've got. Yeah. Um, and you want politicians who understand the issues and want to be committed and signed up to it. And so, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening to your podcast over the next couple of months um, will be getting, you know, things through their door about because it's got to be a general election before uh, January 20. 25. I think it'll come a bit sooner than that. But people will be coming through there, you know, putting mm. stuff through the doors or knocking on the doors, calling for your vote. And you could say, yeah, okay, so what are you going to do about eating disorders? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant idea. And I, I think as well, that is the kind of thing, because I had somebody come to my door, tell me um, all about their kind of approach and everything the other day. And it's, I think it would now I'm regretting not asking because it's they will have their kind of, you know, these are my points that I'm going to work on already prepared. But to ask them a question that they don't have pre-prepared, that could be then very interesting to see how they navigate situations like that. Absolutely. And I think it's also it's feedback to politicians. If, if lots of people on the doorstep, you know, they'll start their spiel and they'll start talking about, you know, cost of living or energy crisis or whatever, the, as you say, the top lines that they've got prepared for them. And then you say, yeah, well, thanks. But what are you going to do about eating disorders? When they go home at the end of their canvassing session um, and, you know, they uh, they meet up at the end of the week to talk about it, they say, yeah, we had people asking about eating disorders. Oh, yeah, so did we. Hmm. And these things get fed back. Um, so it, it's, a you know, it might seem a as I say, we all find the platforms that we have, but the platform on your doorstep in the run-up to a general election is a powerful platform. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if anyone has anybody come knocking, then you know exactly what to do now. Um, I just wanted to cycle back a little bit to the three points that you had yeah. with regards to eating disorder treatment and stuff, um, because I think we can all agree that you know those points that you've raised are really important. I was interested to kind of hear from you, guess the actions behind those points that you're going to take, um, because, you know, often when we talk about politics, it can be like, I want to do this thing, but yeah. then there's no actual structure behind it as to how we're going to achieve it. So I was yeah. interested to hear that from you. Well, the first thing, I, um, when I first raised the issue, I'll start with the first one, which is um, the sort of the severe gaps in training. Mm -hmm. um, because when I, I first got interested in this you'd go and do your research and you know you find out that on, on average people get about two hours absolute most to training on eating disorders which is an absolute disgrace I mean I, I'm a you know I mean it was almost mind-boggling to think that that was the amount of time that people were getting and so I um I asked to meet the general medical council one of the good things about being in the house of lords is when you write to people and say 
will you come and talk to me about this? Normally you get a very pleasant yeah. reply. Yes, of course I'll come and talk to you about it. Um, <laughs> and what we agreed was that I would host a, um, a round table in the, in the House of Lords, which I did um, uh, back in, I think it was 2018, uh, with all the representatives who had a sort of stake in this. So the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, um, uh, the government at that time, Public Health England, um, Medical Schools Council, to basically say, look, what are you all going to do about this? Um, and uh, there, there was, a, you know, at the end of the meeting, I, as the, I was the chair, I was basically able to say, okay, so what have you all agreed to commit to do? Um, and the GMC was, sort of decided that they would sort of take the lead on trying to progress improvements in training. And there have been some improvements, but I was, in fact, I was speaking, I had another meeting today with the General Medical Council saying, okay, so what, you know, what exactly has been done? There's definitely been some progress. I mean, and Beat's been involved with the Royal College of Psychiatrists and the General Medical Council in producing some more resources mm-hmm. so that if medical schools need resources to help train their students, they are out there. That we didn't have before. So I can say with a degree of certainty that I was part of the, you know, making that happen. So I can put a tick by, you know, delivered on that. But of course, that's not mandatory. That's merely a resource if medical schools want to use it. And there are still medical schools out there who, I mean, not as many as there were, that's for sure, a lot more, because Beat did a, a survey of the medical schools, basically asking what they were doing in terms of training. It's much better than it was, but there are still some that are holding out. And I don't understand why, because it's not just about the um, the issues, about their duty to the doctors to make sure that they can go out to the front line and actually know what to do if they get faced with, presented with a person with an eating disorder. But also there's a lot of medical students, a lot of their own students have eating disorders. Mm. So I don't understand the rationale. So my um, uh, uh, sort of future forward um, action is going to be sort of trying to work with BEAT to identify those medical schools that still aren't doing the training that they need to do and to try and turn them round. Maybe look to work with some of the student bodies because it's mm-hmm. quite interesting. I've had a couple of meetings with a couple of, in the past with a couple of the student bodies where the, the, the colleges weren't doing as much training as they needed to and actually the student um, bodies were able to help put some pressure on them to, to turn that around. So I want to be doing that. But there is another area where I think we're still incredibly weak, and that is um, the, the foundation training that psychiatrists get. Very few of them actually are guaranteed to actually have any on-the-job training in, a, in an eating disorder facility mm-hmm. or a, any experience of eating disorder. And that's a really, um, I think, a really weak area, which is something that I feel, um, in, in addition to my pushing the remaining medical schools to actually do more that's my sort of future forward on that to to look at how we can actually get more people um on the job experience in their in their year one training Mm. Uh, yeah I I couldn't agree with you more it's I find it fascinating um because you know, medical professionals, it's great. Um, you know, GPs and doctors and stuff, fantastic. But like you said, it's not mandatory. And something that I've noticed with whether I'm speaking to mental health practitioners, um, psychiatrists, I actually spoke to a dietitian just today. All of them only ever know about how to 
kind of support somebody with an eating disorder if they've gone out to find the information themselves and often that does stem from having lived experience and then that being part of the reason why you want to go into a certain career Um, and I even had one friend who is a mental health practitioner and her service were using her as the person to be like oh you can teach everybody about eating disorders which is totally fine like I personally, in my workplace, do do eating disorder training because I I want to do that. But she was still struggling with an eating disorder. And it it just, you know, when you think, wow, that just shows, (laughs) it just shows the kind of lack of understanding and awareness around it. So I think in terms of kind of any profession that, is part of the multidisciplinary team um, in a hospital with somebody with an eating disorder. I think there's gaps in everybody's training that needs to be improved so that we don't just have people, because we don't have enough eating disorder clinicians as it is. And the people that do go into become eating disorder clinicians are so passionate and care so much, but then they're just very constrained with time and resources when they actually get to treating patients. So it, it you know, it's not the most, appealing job to go for either because you just worked to the ground yeah you know it's very challenging it's very challenging it can be very I'm sure it can be extremely rewarding and I've spoken to people Mm -hmm. who are you do find it incredibly rewarding but my goodness it can be challenging Mm -hmm. and I think even in the most perfect situation even if you had it set up perfectly and there was support in place it would still be a challenging job because ultimately you're supporting people with mental health issues that are really impacting their lives um but I definitely think that there's work and and like you say there has been brilliant work that's happened already um but we you know we just need to keep up this momentum and keep things moving forward so that you know everybody's getting that training that is required rather than people that are interested or you know schools that are interested in providing it it seems to me we're at the we're at base camp Mm -hmm. of where we need to be I mean, I've been in campaigning before I came into the House of Lords. I was in uh, a number of environmental charities. And um, I, I use the example that sometimes it, it can take, you know, 20 or 30 years. And it's dreadful because it's, it's you know, too long. But sometimes it takes a long time. And we, we've got to beat that sort of timeline. But I think on the training side, we've made some good progress. But we're at base camp. There's a hell of a yeah. lot more that needs to be done. Yeah. But we've all got to start somewhere. So it's really good to know that there is action being taken. Um, and then thinking about the other two, that, so it, the other yeah. one, I think, was the number of beds. Yeah, the available. number of beds. I mean, that's about funding um, mm. and it's about political commitment. And the way that I've chosen um, to do this is basically I just ask questions on a regular basis in the House about what's, you know, what's the every six months, what's the bed situation like? Mm-hmm. Have we got more beds? And just constantly putting pressure on the government. Um, and in February, actually, it, not only myself, but a number of uh, colleagues down in the House of Commons also were focusing on the issue of the number of beds and saying, asking the government ministers, well, what are you going to do about this? Yes, of course, we need to, we need to ensure that community care is there, but what are you doing about the number of beds and we've been linking it sadly um, to evidence of uh, areas where coroners are raising concerns that lack of specialist beds is contributor factor to preventable deaths 
Um, and so what we do, yeah, every, every opportunity we can, we're asking the government to put in the public domain how many beds there are um, and what they're going to be doing to make sure that there isn't any. I mean, in some parts of the country, it's it's woeful. Um, Wales is in, in a, an extremely you know, very bad situation in terms of um, the number of specialist beds. So, yeah, just constantly asking the government, what are you doing about increasing the number of specialist beds so they know that they can't get away with it? So that's on the beds issue. And then on the issue of the um, the treatment delays, I mean, I have, I've got a debate actually uh, next week, uh, which will be an hour long in the House of Lords. Uh, and one of the issues I'll be raising is the fact that we still don't have an adult time waiting time standard. Um, and people might say, oh, well, that's a really processy point. Why do you need a waiting time standard? But the trouble is if if you don't measure something, and I keep saying this, if you don't measure something, then people think it doesn't matter. Mm. Uh, and it means the ICTs won't put the funding in to support the services that are needed to actually deliver the waiting times. I mean, you know, you don't need me to tell you what the the waiting times can be for people to get um, services. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Mm. I'm not very good on social media. I'm a bit of an old fuddy-duddy, but, you know, I do occasionally go on to Twitter and my daughters show me things on Instagram and um, occasionally even TikTok and you I mean you could well you would weep if you know I just don't understand how you know that in today's world that it can be acceptable that somebody could be waiting two years two years to get to see the you know to get the treatment that they need when you we know that you know every week can be really critical so, yeah, I'm, I've got a debate um, in the Lords and people might say, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just words. But at the point about having the debate is it raises the profile and the minister has to come and has to respond to the questions that you ask, at which point they then get put under, you know, scrutiny and they'll get, there'll normally be some media interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just constantly embarrassing them and saying, you know, why aren't you doing it? Yeah. Um, and that's that is often the role of politicians to embarrass the government into thinking they have got to do something better. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, just going back to kind of what you were saying about the um, number of beds and the coroner's reports and stuff. I think one thing that really saddens me is that you said it when you were talking in that, people are dying from preventable illnesses and there's been so much come out recently about you know people being put on palliative care for an eating disorder that is fully preventable fully recoverable you just need the right treatment and at the moment we're not offering people the right treatment but I was when I was reading about that I was thinking wow you know, when I was diagnosed with anorexia, my parents were really worried, like, you know, they blamed themselves and they were worried about what was going to happen. But we had had somebody in the family that had recovered so that in the back of their minds, they're thinking it's OK, like we've seen them go through it and it'll be OK to hear like that basically an eating disorder is a death sentence. You know, that's not going to help anybody going through what they're going through. And it's just it's it's almost so interesting that you know you've stood there and you have said you know this is what you need to do you need to provide more treatment for this preventable recoverable 
disorder and in actual fact what they're doing is keeping people on palliative care which I don't know on the time scale of things whether somebody would be in an inpatient unit recovering or whether they'd be in an inpatient unit on palliative care what the comparison would be but I can't imagine that you know putting somebody on palliative care is a better option than helping them to recover so I just I don't understand where that has come from it feels really disjointed to the whole eating disorder community and all the research has been doing been being done it feels very like somebody kind of which I hope that they didn't but sort of plucked it out of thin air I think it's really worrying that this this term terminal anorexia is getting out there because it's not terminal <laughs> it's it, it's that I mean for some people I mean for some people sadly you know this is a really serious mental health illness and some people will die mm-hmm. however to say that you put someone on palliative care because it's a you know terminal illness it's not the case basically we have not invested in enough funding to get the right treatments and then for some people the right treatments that we already do have are not available to them in a given postcode at a given time because of resourcing choices and for me politics is about the choices you make I mean you know you can choose to spend so much of your money on supporting Ukraine and I'm not saying we shouldn't and you can choose to spend so much of your money on, um, you know, the taxes that people give to uh, fund other things. But it is about the choices you make. And it's about standing up and saying, OK, to people, I'm, you know, the, there are things in a civilised society which we should be prepared to pay for. And if that means, you know, finding ways to plug the gaps in the, the tax system by charging you know certain people in a different way so that the people at the top end of society pay more tax to me that seems a perfectly sensible thing to do but I am extremely worried that in the last say it's not even in the last year this idea that you know people starting talking about palliative care for, for terminal patients it's not terminal it shouldn't be regarded as terminal some people will always die however we should be doing all we can in all situations okay. to save them and and I think that's it in that, you know, the the horrific truth of it, like you said, is that sometimes people will die, um, but it is not an illness that, you know, we can't support patients in recovering from. Absolutely. Um, so, we can do much, much better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that often the treatment that we do provide is not appropriate for people in those conditions as well I think I think the the thing I find really really frustrating is that um we know eating disorders present with so many different symptoms so many different kind of reasons behind it you know there is no one size fits all but we have almost these perfect little buckets of okay you have these symptoms therefore you're going to be in this bucket you have these symptoms therefore you're going to be in this bucket um and because you're in that bucket you're now getting that treatment and in my experience i've been put in several different buckets and the bucket has never i've never felt like it fit for me because i had one symptom from that bucket one symptom from that bucket and so i ended up with a diagnosis that led me feeling very very misunderstood and you know i feel like so many people feel this as well not ill enough and so I just didn't engage in this treatment. 
And that I hate saying that because I know that there are, you know, I, I discharged myself. It's not like I was like wasting clinician time or whatever, but there are so many people that I like that as well. And I was in a fortunate position um, through work that I could get private medical insurance but that is not a common thing and yeah. I have now been able to explore lots of different options in terms of the treatment that's available and found a therapist and a form of therapy that is working really well for me but that's taken me 14 years yeah there is no way on this earth that we should be spending 14 years because I have been lucky as well that I've had a great family network a great friends network to keep me kind of above water um, but it's just, it's shocking the way that people are kind of turned away, disregarded. Even when I said I wanted to discharge myself, there was no like, are you sure? Is there anything else we can offer you? Nothing. It was just, oh, okay. Yeah, that's fine. And I'm sure that is because they're like, oh, thank God, that's one less person to worry about. But is it one less person to worry about if they're going their own way? No, it's a really, it's a really good question because it isn't one less person to worry about because in so many situations that person will just get right mm -hmm. back to the bottom of the, well, not, you know, bottom of the illness again, mm -hmm. and need to start all over again. And it just, it's, it's so short-sighted, mm. so short-sighted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know that you were also um looking at the online safety bill yeah um and that i wanted to ask you about in terms of how you're working on the online safety bill in order to support people with eating disorders yeah and maybe something... just to explain what it is as well actually because i didn't know what it was when you first mentioned it yeah well basically obviously uh how we regulate our um media communications is a really important issue and the government should have a, a really key role in that and you know for donkey's years there's been very clear regulation for the tv and for radio and for cinemas what you can and can't do but because it's you know a newer technology there was a much more free-for-all approach in terms of how the online um, industry was regulated and so this government said they wanted to bring forward new regulations. So they brought forward a bill called the Online Safety Bill, which was about trying to make it safer for people to use the Internet. Um, and because my daughter is in her early 20s, she's very media savvy. I could see how positive the online world could be. But because she has an eating disorder, it has some real challenges. And the way that algorithms were effectively pumping information to her and um, clearly to other people with eating disorders. I mean, and if, if you if you'd gone to a site, then you know, she was showing me on her TikTok. I think there's something called the My Page or something. Um, uh, yeah, you, for you page or something. And it's sort of unprompted. You get pushed towards um, pro-Anna and um, uh, 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 pro-binge eating sites. And it, it just seemed to me there were some real challenges around um, regulating the online world, which needed to be picked up from an eating disorder perspective. And I knew there were a couple of other people down in the Commons, um, including Vicky Ford, who's an MP down there, was also very worried about this. So... Um, the way we do this in Parliament is we seek to amend the bill. So you see that the, the, the government publishes a bill and then we try to amend it. 
And so a number of us have down the other end in the Commons and my end in the Lords have really sought to do a couple of things. Firstly, first of all, to get the government to see eating disorders as a serious issue which needed particular regulation because initially initially it wasn't included. They had recognised that um, self-harm was a serious issue and they had recognised that promoting suicide was a serious issue. But promoting eating disorder content wasn't regarded by the government as a serious issue. And so a lot of us, both down both ends of the building, have been kicking up a fuss. And I'm pleased to say that I think we are going to be able to see the government changing their view about this. We're expecting them to come back at report stage with an amendment, which basically says that companies, when they are um, looking at how they govern, uh, how they, you know, manage their businesses, they have to take the issue of uh, promoting pro-eating disorder content as seriously as um, other serious self-harm issues. And that means that Ofcom, who is the, the, the watchdog, the regulator, will set them standards that they have to adhere to. And I think we're going to win that battle. I think we are after the protest. So fingers crossed, um, it comes back to report stage down our end at the end of the month. But I think we're going to, I think we're going to win that battle. The other battle that we've got to win, so there's a gang of us who are still trying to amend the bill, is that at the moment, if, you, um, uh, if you're an adult and you're accessing online services, uh, what the government wants to say is that if you want to um, not access this material, which could cause you harm, you have to opt out. <clears throat> and our argument is that adults who are vulnerable with eating disorders, that's not good enough. That basically there should be a default setting, which is that people have to opt in um, because that would help protect people when they're most vulnerable from actually accessing, because there's obviously a different standard for what people can see as an adult and what they can see as a child. Um, but it's fair to say that there's quite a few people who are opposing us on that because they believe that it, as an adult, you should have the freedom to uh, to choose and therefore you need to, uh, you should be given it unless you opt out. But I feel, and I know a number of us feel very strongly that for people with eating disorders, given the the darkness of some of this material and the fact it can set you back, um, that we need to get people to have the right to, um, uh, to um, they have to opt in rather than to opt out. So it sounds very techy, but actually it's a really important, um, uh, um, I think it's a really important thing that will help protect people from some of the, um, the harmful pro-eating disorder content that we see out there and which we know is is causing people um real harm yeah that really frustrates me the idea of well you're an adult therefore you should kind of be able to make your own choices and, and opt out of that because from my experience and I don't want to say this is everybody's experience but my eating disorder for me has been a form of self-harm and so often going on online um you know going on my phone going to my discovery feed I'm seeking that sort of content that pro eating disorder content because I want to make myself feel bad I want that sort of encouragement of yes you know those behaviors that you were thinking about doing that align with your eating disorder that's what you need to do right now that's what you deserve and so maybe it's like a lack of understanding around how an eating disorder kind of is for somebody the 
um kind of thoughts that they might have and things like that which you know if you if you've not experienced it you won't know um but i think that's why it's so important that we have people like yourself you know really sharing people's stories and talking about how we can sort of impact people because that to me just shows you know a real lack of understanding um it, it'd be similar i mean it's very similar to self-harm isn't it you wouldn't i don't <laughs> i would really hope that somebody wouldn't say oh you know just stop self-harming because it's your choice that you're doing it like okay maybe there is an element of choice in there but I don't feel like I have any other option um and I can't imagine ever somebody would say that to somebody so I do think it's very interesting the sort of thoughts and opinions that sometimes people don't say but sometimes people do say people hold around eating disorders um and I think it it is a difficult one to navigate because I think that I mean, and I think maybe this could be similar with different um, mental health conditions as well, in that somebody's, um, if I use the word triggering, if somebody's triggering content is going to vary from the individual next to them, just like the reasons that they maybe developed an eating disorder or the way that their eating disorder is demonstrated in their behaviours is going to, um, it is going to kind of be sampled. But I think whilst there is an element of responsibility for the individual to curate their social media feed in a way that doesn't negatively impact them. I think that there's also a big responsibility in order for, you know, companies, the government, that sort of thing, for that obviously triggering content and that content that's promoting different types of behaviours, you know, that that needs to go. Yeah. Well, I I think it's been, I, I think we are, through the conversations on the online safety bill, we are educating civil servants and the government about the the triggering content that is out there and which I think we are going to see fortunately some changes to but it's not just them I mean I had uh, I had a, um, a conversation and I'm hoping to have a meeting with off um, Ofcom who I say are the regulator for this space because they're the ones who are going to be having to put this new bill into practice and I want to I've already started a conversation with them about but I want to carry on talking to them about is how they're going to get the voice of people with eating disorders in to advise them about what are the things that they need to look out for as a regulator. Because, I mean, we know how complex it is, but I mean, you know, Ofcom, what will they know about eating disorders? You know, they're a regulator for communication businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they'll they'll know lots about um, uh, communications and tech things, but they won't know anything about what, as you say, could be very triggering. So I'm I'm keen to be able to use, again, the platform that I have to basically say to these people, okay, so who are you talking to to mm-hmm. get the information that you need to regulate this space properly? Yeah, which I'm really grateful for that because I think it's so important. I think getting the perspective from a range of individuals is so important, um, you know, from all different backgrounds, from all different walks of life. Um and to hear from people that have had good experiences as well. You know, if somebody's had an experience, you know, like Rose, your daughter, who has been able to access the care, you know, what was really beneficial for you yeah. in your time that, you know, meant that the whole process, as horrific as it is, was just that little bit easier. Because um, there's there's things from my experience that I could absolutely take forward and say, you know, this really like I had a brilliant GP and she was so supportive she'd ring me every single week to see how I was doing unfortunately the onward care from then was not 
brilliant but she still messages me now to say I got a message from her last week to say how are things going you know how are you progressing with your therapist and I know that that takes time and I know that that is her going the extra mile but things like that they really hold sometimes I find all I need is a little beacon of light of that beacon of hope um, that people believe I can get better and I think that is one thing to definitely take forward in terms of what clinicians can be doing to help people yeah holding that beacon of hope that's a lovely phrase <laughs> everybody needs to know that there's someone holding it for them and sometimes it'll be a family member and sometimes it, mm-hmm. as you said there's some fantastic clinicians and people who care out there in the NHS and elsewhere yeah. Um, but yeah we you know we're human beings we need those people yeah, absolutely. Well, Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And I just, I'm so grateful for you using the platform that you have to really talk about eating disorders, because like you said earlier, you have got, you're in such a great position to have conversations um, that are very difficult conversations to have, but it really is making a difference as you've kind of explained today. Um, So if people want to kind of keep in touch with the work that you're doing, or if they have any questions, is there anywhere that they can contact you? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm not a very regular person on Twitter because I'm not very good at those sort of things. In fact, Rose normally helps me because I'm pretty useless. But I do have a Twitter account, at Kate Parmenter. Um, And equally, if you've got anything at any time, please email me. um, uh, K at parliament.uk. Don't have any members of staff, um, but, uh, you know, I'll get back to you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kate. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.